The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. True crime can be strangely fascinating. This true crime is odd, macabre, and haunted. I'm Diane, your guide into the shadows. Welcome to Phantasmal Crime. far from Malabar Farm State Park in Ohio sits Pleasant Valley Cemetery. One marble grave marker stands a bit higher than the rest of the headstones around it, and across the top is embossed the family name, Rose. This marks the final resting place of three members of the Rose family who all died within a 30-day time frame. The cause of death was not some hideous plague that swept through town. The family was murdered. That revelation is horrific enough but what makes this story truly chilling is that they were murdered by one of their own. David S. Rose was born in 1829. He married Rebecca Easter in 1855 and they had two children, Walter and Celia. When the Civil War broke out, David enlisted with the Union Army at the age of 32. He served with distinguished honor in the 63rd Infantry Regiment, Ohio. He mustered out in 1865. Walter had been born in 1857 before the war, but Celia came much later. She wasn't born until 1873. Celia, or Celia as everybody called her, was described in those days as slow in abilities, so she probably had some form of cognitive disability. The Roses lived near the Berry Farm, and they had a son named Guy. Celie fell madly in love with Guy. She would spend every moment she had tracking him down and trying to talk to him. Guy was nice to Celie. He probably felt a tad sorry for her, but he did not have the same romantic feelings for her. His family did not approve of the friendship. As one can imagine, back in the 1800s, slower people were not treated with much dignity or respect. The Barry family went so far as to tell David to keep his daughter Celie away from their son. David respected their wishes and told Celie that she had to stay away from Guy. Poor Celie. Guy is the love of her life. And she was enraged. She just knew that Guy loved her. This is what she'd been telling all her friends, even declaring that she and Guy were going to get married. Now, her family was keeping her away from her one true love. There was only one thing she could do to rectify the situation and that was to kill her family. She went to the store and bought some rat poison. The next morning, she made the family breakfast and laced the cottage cheese with the arsenic. Celie's brother and parents all fell ill. Walter was strong enough to go to town to fetch the doctor. The doctor comes, and he can't figure out what's made the family so ill. 
David died quickly and passed on June 30th in 1896. He was the first to succumb to the poison. Walter followed shortly thereafter, passing away on July 4th at the age of 39. Rebecca recovered, and the town folk figured that the mysterious illness had passed. No one is sure how, but apparently Rebecca had figured out what Celia had done, but she loved her daughter. She knew that some people in town were also suspicious since Celia had bought a large quantity of rat poison shortly before the deaths of her father and brother. So she knew that they were going to have to get out of town. So she told Celia that they had to leave. This only panicked Celia further, and she again decided to poison her mother. This time she was successful, and Rebecca died on July 19th. The Mansfield, Ohio newspaper, the Richland Shield and Banner, reported on July 25, 1896, of the mysterious poisoning of the Rose family. The mother died Sunday, and the daughter is the only survivor. People of that vicinity intensely aroused and demand investigation. Coroner Bauman was notified by telephone message from Dr. Bud of Perryville of the death of Mrs. Rebecca Rose, which occurred at 5 o'clock Sunday morning. This is the third death which has occurred in the Rose family, the result of supposed poisoning, the deaths of the father and son Walter having occurred previously. The coroner left immediately for the Rose homestead in Pleasant Valley and at 2.30 o'clock yesterday afternoon held a postmortem assisted by Dr. Bud. The stomach, liver, and kidneys were removed and sealed up and brought to the city. They will probably be analyzed, as will also the stomach of Walter, which is in the coroner's possession. The postmortem revealed that Mrs. Rose had died from gastritis, which also caused the death of the son and father. The coroner developed several facts which tend to cast strong suspicion upon the daughter, Celia, who is the only surviving member of the Rose family. With his evidence at hand, prosecuting attorney Douglas will bring the case before the grand jury. The daughter, Celia, appears to be utterly indifferent in the matter and apparently does not comprehend the nature of the crime of which she is suspected. The funeral of Mrs. Rose was held Monday morning and the remains were interred in the cemetery at Pleasant Valley Church beside those of the father and son. The people of Pleasant Valley are aroused and demand that the strictest investigation be made to discover, if possible, the guilty party. Later, the paper reported on August 23, 1896, results of Dr. Spencer's analysis of the stomach of Walter Rose and his mother, Mrs. Rebecca Rose. Dr. Spencer states that he found arsenic in the stomach, liver, and kidneys of Mrs. Rose and in the stomach and liver of Walter Rose. The police figured the best way to get an indictment was to get Seely to confess since their evidence was slim. With the help of one of Seely's friends, Seely confessed that she was responsible for her family's deaths and told her how she had put poison in the family meals. Seely was arrested and put on trial. The jury found Seely guilty by reason of insanity and she became a ward of the state. She was shipped off to the Toledo Asylum, where she remained until 1915. At that time, she was transferred to the Lima State Hospital. There she stayed until her death in 1934. Her body was buried at the Lima Hospital's graveyard and features a simple white cross with a picture of her attached. So she was not buried with the rest of her family at the Pleasant Valley Cemetery. By the way, her love, Guy Berry, is also buried at Pleasant Valley. This is not where the story ends for us ghost seekers, though. The Malabar Farm State Park now owns the Rose family home. And apparently, it's haunted. The story goes that on a full moon night, the spirit of Celie will make an appearance and is usually seen peering out of a window. It would seem that she is still very attached to her former home. 
Her full-bodied apparition is also seen walking the grounds outside as though she may still be seeking her long-lost love, Guy Barry. The state park also built a barn from wood beams taken from the Rose family mill. People have claims of unexplained happenings in the barn. A play was put on in the barn featuring the story of Celie Rose. During a rehearsal, one of the stage lights during the scene of where Celie is killing her mother would continuously flicker on and off throughout that scene. After the scene was over, the light went back to normal. A man named Mark Jordan wrote that play, and he decided that he should pay his respects to Celie at her grave. He wrote this of the experience and others that followed. When I initially read Woodyard's version of the story, I wasn't overly concerned about the ghost angle, but I knew it was a vivid story for presentation as a play, so I wrote a play entitled Seelie. When I first offered my script to local theaters, none of them were interested in taking a big risk on a dark drama by an unknown writer, so I shelved it for a while. After eight years, I found an actress who I thought could do the role of Seelie, and I also met the manager of Malabar Farm State Park, Louis Andres, who was interested in having the play performed at Malabar Farm itself. So I threw myself back into the project and got the Mansfield Playhouse to back the project as a co-production with the State Park. I involved my actress, Candy Boyd, with the research. On a raw, windy day in March of 2003, we made the drive to Lima, Ohio, to visit the old prison graveyard where Celia is buried. The clouds were low and heavy that day, and the closer we got to Lima, the more they seemed to close in on us. The drive had started with cheerful chatter, but it had all evaporated by the time we approached the ominous complex of prisons on Lima's north side. Driving up to the prison, my stomach sank. I felt like I was being sent away myself. Because of the overlapping jurisdictions of the various prisons, it took the staff members over an hour to determine just who should send a guard to accompany us to the graveyard site. Eventually, they gave us an escort from the Oakwood Correctional Facility. He had to go back to the office to get the keys to the cemetery gate. We followed him by car to the backside of the prison property where the small, grim cemetery was located. Although it is small, over 300 inmates whose bodies were unclaimed by relatives are buried there. Only about half of the graves actually have the names on them. Many have only numbers. The guard was embarrassed to discover that the cemetery no longer had a gate. I had the distinct impression that visitors to the cemetery was an almost unheard of happening. We located her grave quickly, as Celie was buried in the front row of the main section and her grave was one that had the name on it even if it was misspelled as C-E-C-I-L-I-A, Rose. Her given name was actually C-E-L-I-A. It took several pictures, including one of Candy standing by Celie's grave. After taking all the pictures, it suddenly hit me just how real this story was that I was about to recreate on stage. These weren't fictional characters. Celie was a real person, and here I was snapping pictures of a grave like a tourist at Disneyland. Although for those of us At History Goes Bump, we totally understand why you would be snapping pictures of a grave. It's what we do. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music and we celebrate every last ray of sun Le Boricua 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I decided I'd better step up to the grave and properly pay my respects. I'm not committed to any organized religion, and I couldn't say I was sure that it would make any difference one way or the other, but just out of respect to the troubled dead, I thought I should offer a little silent prayer telling Celie that we sought to tell her story not out of sensationalism, but instead in hopes of reminding people how a troubled life can snowball out of control until many others' lives are ruined by it. If anyone could ever have taken enough control of the developing situation, the tragedy of Celie's life and acts could have been avoided but no one did. I said in my thoughts, Celie, we want to tell your story so that something like this never has to happen to anyone else. We will tell your story with respect and with love. At that exact moment, for the first time that day, the leaden clouds parted and a ray of sunshine shone down on Celie's grave for about 10 seconds. Nowhere else in the graveyard or even in the landscape around was the sun shining. Just there on Celie, Candy and I slowly turned to each other, our mouths agape. Then the clouds pulled over the sun again like a heavy door, and everything returned to the earlier drab pall. I snapped a couple more pictures, and we left. Most of the pictures I took that day are clear depictions of the sad little cemetery. But there is one strange one, one of the last ones I took before leaving. It is centered on the pine tree right next to Celie's grave, which overhangs it. Celie's grave is on the left, but off to the right, past the tree, is a little group of bright streaks, four or five of them, which seemed to fly out of frame just as the picture was being taken. There certainly wasn't anything there when I took the picture, not that I could see anyway. I can't really be sure about the directions of the streaks. If they were moving into camera range instead of out of it, then they are moving towards Seely's grave. Either way, it was a surprising picture. Later that fall, during the actual production at Malabar Farm, I had a few more interesting happenings. One of the spookiest things about our production is that we were putting the play on in the big barn at Malabar Farm, less than a quarter of a mile away from the Rose Farmstead itself. Some of the older wooden beams in the barn actually come from the Shrack Mill, which Seeley's father ran until his death. So the connection with the real people is again very palpable, not to mention the eeriness of hanging out in a barn out in the middle of nowhere late at night in October. The first strange thing was during a rehearsal in late September in the barn. The actresses playing Celie and her mother Rebecca were on stage going through the intense scene where Celie decides to poison her mother for the second time. I was walking from position to position around the stage making sure that the sight lines were good so that everyone in the audience would be able to see their faces. I ended up down by the house right corner of the stage so that I was almost looking across at the actors. As I did so I noticed that one of the light bulbs on the sloped roof just beyond them was acting strange. Our main lights for these rehearsals were these lights two strips of lights running the length of the barn, all interconnected, attached to the sloping roof about eight feet off the ground. The one furthest back on the left side was slowly, evenly, pulsing off and on. I looked around at the other lights. They were all on as usual. Only that one, nearest the actresses on stage, was pulsing like that. I looked around. No one else had noticed it, for the scene was engrossing, no matter how many times we'd all seen it. I decided not to point it out and returned to watching the scene. 
By the end of the scene, the actresses were drained and everyone else watching, myself included, seemed to release our breaths all at once in relief. I glanced back up at the light. It had stopped pulsing and was now off, although the rest of the lights were still on. I thought to myself, maybe it was just burning out, although I'd never seen one pulse like that before going out. Later in the rehearsal, I noticed it was back on, like normal. That weekend, we were putting up our technical equipment, and I stayed late that Sunday night, stapling up pieces of black fabric to cover the open overhang that led to the lower part of the barn where animals are kept, including Pete the Horse, who cheerfully added a few realistically rural sound effects throughout the rehearsals and performances. And I don't mean neighing. Think high-fiber diet. I'm sure it gave a lot of wonderful smells with that, too. Anyway, it was chilly that evening, and I'd left the stage lights on for warmth and to counter the gloom as I was hanging the dark fabric. The lower section of the barn is open to the outside, and a breeze would always blow up through the overhang. I noticed that this breeze was making my fabric billow in a very spooky manner. I'd been making my way up the side, covering the overhang piece by piece. I was just about to the sign. Part of my original plan had been to have these little signs distributed throughout the barn that would light up in the darkness at the beginning of the play, and each sign would have words or a phrase relating to the story, such as poison, triple murder, mentally deficient, etc. My tech director, Dan Fiertag, had built one sample sign with the phrase mysterious deaths on it, and we'd hung it on a post by the overhang and wired it into the board and tried it a few days previously. Unfortunately, we finally determined that we did not have enough dimmer packs to use all these various signs, so we decided instead, necessity being the mother of invention, to have the actors whisper these phrases from backstage which ended up being a chilling effect in its own right. Even though we weren't going to use it, we had left the sign hanging on the post. Here I was, hanging fabric after midnight in the barn, knowing I had to go to work at my day job in the morning. I decided that I wasn't going to mess with unhooking and removing the sign. I could easily just cover it with the black fabric I was hanging. Just as I was walking up to the overhang to staple up the piece of fabric next to the sign, it briefly flashed, lighting up mysterious deaths in red letters. I froze for a second then put down the cloth and rolled around to see if someone had snuck in the barn behind me and flashed the sign from the board, even though I knew the short burst had been quicker than the submaster could be manually faded. No one was there. I took a few steps back and walked up to the overhang again, wondering if some reflection of light on the sign could make it appear to light up, but no matter how many angles I tried, no reflection was equivalent to what I had seen out of the corner of my eye. The sign had lit up from within. It crossed my mind to panic and get the hell out of there. But I decided there was no point. I spoke out loud. Thanks for the company. I resumed my work, covering the sign with fabric. I can't say it didn't set my pulse to pounding, and I breathed a little easier once the sign was covered and out of sight. Dan set up the sound equipment on Monday, so we started running with full tech that evening. Things started okay on Tuesday evening until toward the end of Act 1, when the sound equipment suddenly stopped emitting any sounds. I fiddled with the various pieces, trying to locate the problem. I knew the old amplifier had a tendency to short out, so I assumed at first that it was merely shorting out. But then I got it working again because I could hear its usual hum through the speakers. But then when I hit the CD player, nothing would come through. I unplugged and replugged the player, amp, and mixing board and tried it again. And this time I could hear the music from the speakers, but it sounded constricted, staticky, and far away no matter how much I turned up the amp or board. I finally gave up and told the cast to continue on without sound and gave Dan a call and asked him to come fix it tomorrow. Before Wednesday's rehearsal, Dan showed up with different equipment and started plugging in different pieces that he knew worked in order to see which piece of our original equipment had gone bad. About 20 minutes later, with rehearsal overdue to start, I heard Dan cussing at the equipment and saying, this is not bleeping possible. I ran over to confer. 
He said that nothing he was plugging in was working. He was trying each new piece, but nothing was working. He even replaced the cables and power cords and nothing worked. He swore at some more and said, the only other thing I can try, the only other thing I can try is to hook up all the new stuff and completely remove the other equipment we were using, but it doesn't make sense. I shouldn't have to do that. By this point, I had a crazy idea and I thought I'd better try it or my big debut production was going to be a fiasco. I told him to remove all of the old equipment and hook up the replacement pieces. While he was occupied with that, I stepped off to the side of the barn and feeling a bit foolish, but having nothing to lose, I said quietly, Seely, we're doing the show for you. Without your help, we can't tell your story. Please knock it off or we're finished. I stepped back over to the booth where Dan was finishing up. He put in the music CD and pressed play. Rich and loud poured the music from the speakers once again. After that, I made it my habit to remind Seely before every performance of how we needed her help and we suffered no other major problems. One night, I forgot to go through this little litany and a couple minutes before the show started, as I was standing backstage, I looked up and noticed the light which had pulsed during rehearsal was doing it again. I quickly thanked Seely for her help just before the lights were faded down to start the show and everything went well. When the lights were faded up again for intermission, it had resumed its steady shine. In the end, the production was a huge success, and all the performances sold out, and all the shows went well. The Pleasant Valley Cemetery is said to be haunted by the Rose family members buried there. Most of the stories about this feature orbs and pictures, so take that for what it's worth. The strange shapes that people have caught in pictures are another story. Quite creepy. People claim that Seely is the ghost in the graveyard and is coming to visit her family, whom she murdered. Or perhaps she is visiting Guy's grave. If you are in the area during October, the park puts on the Seely Rose play and serves up dinner while you watch. Then you head out for a hayride to the Rose family home and a visit to the cemetery. Are the spirits of the Rose family, in particular Seely Rose's spirit, still roaming around on this side of the veil? That is for you to decide. Thanks so much for listening to History Ghost Bumps, Phantasmal Crime. If you'd like to share with us a haunted crime that you've heard about, please write us at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I've been your host, Diane. Join me on the next episode for another trip through the shadows. This has been a production of History Ghost Bump Podcast.